Whether it's Duke Ellington with his jazz-inflected version of Jingle Bells or a traditional carol, Christmas wouldn't be the same without holiday music and songs. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today on With Good Reason, we've invited some guests to play the music that most resonates with them during the holiday season. With Good Reason producer Elliot Majerzyk talks with three people about their favorite holiday music and memories. His first guest is Tim Anderson, who's a professor of communication and theater arts at Old Dominion University. Tim, you study popular music and culture, so here's my question to you. Why does it seem to me that every musician puts out a Christmas record, from Stevie Wonder to Neil Diamond, Eric Clapton, and I just heard there's even a new record by William Shatner of Star Trek fame, who's putting out a record called Shatner Claws? Oh, boy. Yeah, no, I hadn't heard that one, but I'm not surprised. There's a couple factors. One is... Um, you know, starting the day after Thanksgiving, it's it's licensed to play Christmas music for a good 30-plus days or so. So, you know, the person who did Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer is going to get residuals off of 30 days of play. It's not just economic, but it's, you know, it's part of our culture. Christmas ain't going anywhere, and if it does, then something else has happened in our culture that's going to be very big. So, Tim, the first song you picked was, in fact, reminiscence, but not from your childhood, from your university days. It's not really a Christmas song, No, but it does bring you back to this time of year. Yeah, yeah. Um, I chose A Ghost in You by uh, the Psychedelic Furs off of their Mirror Moves record. That came out in the late 80s, and uh, I I was living in Tucson. Everybody thinks that the desert is always very warm, but uh, during the winter, you get houses that aren't very insulated, and I would spend most of my time listening to music while studying for finals, and this was easily my favorite record to listen to. a very personal memory it's that it's uh one of the things that records do for everyone is you know if you've luckily if you're uh if you're able to live long enough you have memories and you, you're able to look back and go that record really brought me back to a to a time whether it was uh, difficult or or interesting or or joyful and for me it's all three your next selection was released in 1965 and that's the right. same year as the rolling stones released satisfaction and Bob Dylan's classic, Like a Rolling Stone. But it turns out that this song has that same staying power. Yeah, I mean, I don't see uh, aging with time. And it's it's a selection from the Charlie Brown Christmas uh, special and, uh, and album, the Vince Guaraldi album. To me, this is a high point in American culture. And I mean that sincerely. Like, it's, it's jazz. It's West Coast jazz. It's, it's also peanuts. It's a lot of things I really like about about American culture, and on top of that, it's a, it's a great melody. Do you have an early memory of the first time you heard this? 
you know, when if you're growing up like I was, this was the one special. There were like this Grinch, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. These were the things that you look forward to. Um, you know, they only came on once a year. You know, we didn't we didn't have DVDs. We didn't have VHS, VCRs. But the memory that really sticks for me is going to college and being really upset that I might miss this and running down to, because uh, I didn't have a television in my dorm room, running down to um, uh, the student union with my friends and, and catching the last 15 minutes of it. Tim, with your ear always to the musical landscape, <laughs> sorry about that mixed metaphor. That's okay. It's okay. You've actually found a new version of this song. Well, it's it's funny. I'm uh, I'm not as plugged in as I once was, but I've been following a new band called Krongbin, and I I bought one of their records, and as is the case these days, whenever you buy something, you get on a mailing list and. I got uh, solicited with a with a new version, which is a, a nice green seven inch single of, of course, uh, Christmas time is here off of the Charlie Brown Christmas special. It's it's terrific, by the way. For your next selection, I remember seeing this on MTV, and I didn't realize <laughs> it was released in 1987, and such an off-the-wall Christmas song. I mean, it's certainly alcohol-infused. <laughs> and every year in England, it's voted in the top 10 songs of Christmas by the you know, people who follow the English music presses. Right. Well, it's, it's fairy tale in New York. This is off of uh, the, the second widespread release you could get in the United States of, uh, of the Pogues. And I bought it immediately because I, I love Shane McGowan. And I, I just think he's not only a genius lyricist, but he's also a genius uh, vocalist in his own way. And many people will be like, what? It's crazy. But there's no one that ever sounds like him. Also next to Kirsty McCall's makes this thing work. It's uh, It's totally sour and sweet. You've got uh, the sort of straight vocals of, of Christy that no one ever sang like her. She has one of the purest voices ever. And then you have Shane McGowan, who 
really comes out as a as sort of a drunken lot in this, and as he does in a lot of his songs, the couple definitely they're they're winding up in a fight about drinking and about what they're supposed to do and a promise of what New York was supposed to offer them. I will say this for those of you who've never heard it, it it's, it's got a number number of lyrics and a number of uh, words that you may want to watch out for if you if you have children around certainly uh, earmuff time. Well, uh, we'll edit them out. <laughs> <laughs> You promised me Broadway was waiting for me You were handsome You were pretty queen of New York City When, when the, the band finished playing They held out for more Sinatra was swinging All the drums they were singing We kissed on the corner Then danced through the night The boys of the Envoy Choir Were singing Go away play And the bells were ringing out For Christmas Day Tim, thanks for... Uh, playing all these songs your taste is impeccable thank you it's just like mine so it... <laughs> all the best to you and your families at this time of year and thanks again you too safe travels I could have been someone well so could anyone you took my dreams from me when I first found you I kept them with me, babe I put them with my own Can't make it all alone I built my dreams around you The boys of the NYPD chorus Still singing, go away, play And the bells are ringing out For Christmas Day That was Elliot Majerzyk with Tim Anderson professor of communication and theater arts at Old Dominion University. Next, Elliot talks with Jacqueline Sequoy, professor of music education at Longwood University. Jacqueline, you are a professor of music and you're also a music educator, but the first song you picked is something from your very, very early childhood. That's right. So this is a song, Children Go Where I Send Thee, by, uh, but it's performed by Peter, Paul, and Mary. And this is from a holiday album from the 80s when I was growing up. Um, and I remember when we got this CD, my parents would sing along, my brothers and I, and it became a tradition in our family that we listen to it every year. Whenever we're opening presents, we have to have this album on. As you listen to the music, they have a very approachable sound, something you can sing along to. That's something I value in music is that feeling of... You know, music's for everybody, and being a part of it, we should be welcoming people in.
Jacqueline, I believe the music we liked as children still resonates with us today. I grew up in a household where there was a lot of different music on the record player, classical folk, pop, even religious music, and it still shapes my tastes. I completely agree. I grew up in a household where my older brothers especially were very interested in music. And my brother Spencer especially was the big power movement in our family, kind of introducing us all to new music. In fact, just when I drove in, he sent me a link to a new music um, experience, a person that he's met. So it's it's a constant part of my life. And I've always I've always loved that. So the next song you pick is another memory, but it's from the time you started playing a musical instrument. That's right. So when I was in the fifth grade, I started playing the flute. And in the seventh grade, we played this song, the Ukrainian bell carol. And so I remember playing this piece. And as we played, the flute section came in first with um, kind of recurring bum, 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 bum. And I remember feeling that I was part of a, a whole. And that was sort of the first time that I experienced the, that aesthetic feeling of being joined with other people through sound. And it was so powerful to me. And it's kind of stayed with me through my whole life, that feeling of playing music with other people in the same room. You know, Jacqueline, for some young people, being in a choir or a band is a place where they can self-actualize, or even for some kids, it's a safe space. Yeah, I've, I've seen that as in my own life, but also being an educator in elementary and middle school and now at the college level. You know, music offers a place for students and children to just belong and feel accepted and to find out who they are through music. There are so many famous and successful musicians in interviews who talk about their childhood and saying things like, I wasn't good at anything. This was something that I could be really good at. I came alive when I realized that this is something that I could do well if I worked on it. Yeah, I had never realized it until I graduated from high school. 
And when I graduated from high school, I wasn't in any music for a year. I didn't perform. I didn't play. I wasn't in any music classes. I didn't go to college right away. And when I got to, I went to community college and took a music class and I was like, this is what is missing and this is what I can't live without. (laughs) All right. So the next song we're going to hear was actually a top 10 Christmas song on the uh, Billboard charts. You hear it every Christmas, but it certainly has a bittersweet resonance. It does. So this is Happy Christmas, War is Over by John Lennon and Yoko Ono. And I had heard it many times, not realizing it was John Lennon. And I, you know, I didn't really get into the Beatles until I was in college. But this particular piece was sort of haunting to me, but also warming at the same time and is, you know, sort of the genius of John Lennon and his songwriting. His message of peaceful change but personal accountability is still completely relevant if we just look around us today. That was the late, great John Lennon and Yoko Ono, along with the Harlem Community Choir. Jacqueline, thank you so much for playing these great tunes, and all the best to you and yours on the holiday season. Thank you. It's been wonderful to do this interview. Elliot speaking with Jacqueline Sequoy, a professor of music education at Longwood University. Elliot's last guest today is Kevin Bartram. He's director of the University of Mary Washington Philharmonic Orchestra. Kevin, let's start off with this. Most people can recognize the tune, but are really not certain of the title or the composer. I'm, I'm sure they've heard it countless times. was Leroy Anderson's Sleigh Ride. One of my favorite Christmas works, this piece of music was written in 1946 at the request of the conductor of the Boston Pops Orchestra, Arthur Fiedler. It's a happy song. It just denotes happiness and joy. Yes, the first instrumental piece, incidentally, to uh, reach number one on the Billboard charts. He actually composed a piece of music using a typewriter as the lead instrument. 
He did. And you talk about a challenge to compose a piece of music with substance written for a solo instrument of a typewriter. But uh, when Laurie Anderson wrote this piece, it was a huge hit, and he used to appear as a guest artist on the Boston Pops with a little um, accountant's hat, and he would bring his typewriter on stage, and he would play his piece called The Typewriter. I just saw a YouTube video that shows a musician in tuxedo and tails sitting in front of the stage, tapping the keyboard, and it's just a wonderful video. Several years ago, we had a tribute concert to Laura Anderson, and we had Kurt Anderson, his son, guest conduct the orchestra, and he led the orchestra with the typewriter and also the syncopated clock. In the audience was Leroy's widow, Eleanor. And I was surprised to learn from Eleanor that this was one of the first tribute concerts to her husband's memory in over a decade. Your next selection is Have Yourself a Merry Christmas by the great Judy Garland from the 1944 film Meet Me in St. Louis. I just saw her on Turner Classic Movies in the 1954 version of A Star is Born with James Mason, which, of course, now everybody's talking about this year's version with Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga. I also read that the production of Judy Garland had to be stopped because she had a lot of issues due to mental instability and some drug problems. So I think the thing about Judy Garland is what attracts me to her is you can hear a certain vulnerability in her voice that she's always on the precipice. The song came from Meet Me in St. Louis, an MGM great musical from 1944. And in this particular scene... Her character named Esther is trying to cheer up her five-year-old little sister, Tootie, who's played by Margaret O'Brien. And we hear the music of the first Noel first, and then it segues into this new song, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. The family is about to move from their beloved St. Louis to New York City. They're homesick. They're very sad. And then to introduce a Christmas song which is hopeful but also sad at the same time, and then to be performed by Judy Garland, who had notable issues herself, with a remarkable performance of a multi-layered song. Have yourself a merry little Christmas Let your heart be light Next year all I think the thing that gets to me in that song is 
It's supposed to be a happy song, but there's some kind of sadness, wistfulness. It's the same quality she brought to Somewhere Over the Rainbow. And the original, incidentally, was too sad. So Judy Garland and her co-star Tom Drake asked for a rewrite of the lyrics. The original lyrics said, It may be your last. Next year we may all be living in the past. And they asked the composer to change it to Let Your Heart Be Light. Next year, all our troubles will be out of sight. And that's how the final version was performed. Until then, we'll have to muddle through somehow. So have yourself. Kevin, you had a chance to work with this next performer who's a worldwide household name. Tell me about it. A couple of years ago, we were fortunate enough to bring Tony Bennett to Fredericksburg. He performed with our symphony orchestra. To bring a legend on stage was one of the highlights of my career, and indeed one of the, the best memories I have of that performance is with my back to the audience, we introduced Tony Bennett. He came out on stage, and I thought that the cymbal player, the drummer, had dropped his cymbals because I heard a loud crash. Turned out, as I peeked around, the drummer was fine. It was the audience, the loudest cheer I'd ever heard in our auditorium, and it actually frightened me a little bit. It was so overwhelming. But then Tony comes out, Mr. Cool. We do the first number. He turns around and gives me a little wink, and we're off and running. He was 90 years old at the time. 90 years old at the time. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Jack Frost nipping at your nose. Yuletide carols being sung by a choir. Folds dressed up. Like Eskimos Everybody knows A turkey and some mistletoe Help to make the season bright Does music really keep you young? Have you found that in your life? Or you hear that from musicians all the time That music keeps me young Sure works for Tony it has worked for me as well. They know that Santa's on his way. He's loaded lots of toys and goodies on his sleigh. And every mother's child. Kevin, all the best to you and those you hold close in your heart this Christmas. Thank you. And thank you to all, and Merry Christmas. That was Kevin Bartram, director of the University of Mary Washington Philharmonic Orchestra, speaking with With Good Reason producer Elliot Majerzyk. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. 
it's been said many times, many ways. Natural fact oh, that a man don't understand that Bible writing. That's all. That's all. I tell you that's all. That's all. That's all. But they better have Welcome back to With Good Reason. That's Sister Rosetta Tharp. She was a singer, songwriter, and guitarist who attained great popularity in the 30s and 40s. In fact, she became the first superstar of gospel music and her rhythmic style and charisma captivated a whole generation of young rock and rollers. Oh, there's a kind of preacher, he's high in speech. He has to go to college just to learn how to preach and that's all. I'll just tell you that's all. Not many of us have heard of her, but Sister Rosetta Tharp was a major influence on Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, Little Richard, and Johnny Cash. In fact, before he died, Johnny Cash called Tharp his favorite singer. Chris Kajornis is a professor of music at Longwood University and teaches a course on the history of rock and roll. Chris, tell me about Sister Rosetta Tharp and where she came from. Well, she was born in 1915 in Cotton Plant, Arkansas. Both of her parents were amateur instrumentalists, and their life really centered around the church. Her mother was a strong woman with no fear. She was what they call a stomp-down Christian. Yes, she played guitar and tambourine and would even go and just sit out on the steps and play and try to bring people to Jesus. So, Rosetta Bell, what was she like during this period of her early, early upbringing in Arkansas? Was she singing at age two, three, four? Yeah, and there's great stories of her being lifted up on the piano and singing before the congregation. It's pretty clear that she was playing the guitar from about the age four. So her mother eventually leaves Arkansas and moves to Chicago with Rosie. She would have been six, and she was obviously exposed to this very emotive Pentecostal music. Pentecostal music was exciting. It was fervent. There were no limits. They were one of the first churches to have live instruments. And so she was soaking all of this up. I think you hear it on this 1960 recording of Sit Down, where she was playing the solid body electric guitar, and you just feel this energy. You can hear her stomping her foot, and you can just imagine everyone jumping up and stomping with her. This is the church where people would end up speaking in tongues and rolling in the aisle, and I think we feel this urge to do that as well when we hear this. Sit down. Sit down. Uh uh-uh. uh. I can't sit down. Uh, go away. Don't bother me. I can't sit down. I feel so happy and I can't sit down. Sit down. No, I can't sit down. Uh, sit down. No, no. I can't sit down. Uh, no, 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 no. I can't sit down. Uh, I feel so happy and I can't sit down. Uh, who's that yonder dressed in white? I just got to heaven and I can't sit down. It, she's a one woman powerhouse. To see video of her brings it home too. It's just so amazing to see this woman. And there weren't videos made until the 60s, but she's in, you know, full dress all the way down to the collar to cuffs and just up there ripping it up. That is her playing the electric guitar? That is. Was she religious herself like her mother was? 
That's always a tough question because there's certainly things that she did that would not fit with what you would think of as a religious person. But she was gaining in the 20s almost wild popularity with the African-American gospel church-going audience. Yes, and then as the 20s give way to the 30s, uh, she ends up in Miami, and you have one of the strangest scenes uh, we can imagine where she's performing at a temple in Miami, and they begin broadcasting this on the radio. And so now all of a sudden people outside of the black Pentecostal community are hearing Sister Rosetta Tharp and start coming to the temple. You have white listeners, you have Jewish listeners that are packing the balcony while uh, the congregants are down on the floor and everyone is enjoying this music. And we can hear that excitement that was generated. When we listen to Didn't It Rain, this is one of the really wonderful duets that she would record a little bit later on with Marie Knight. And you can imagine hearing this on the radio and going, I want to be where that is. I can imagine hearing that on the radio for the first time. It's electrifying. Absolutely. And, and I think that when we look at the explosion of rock and roll and all the excitement that came with this hot music, these Pentecostal churches had a big influence on early rock and roll and this just excitement and fervor and filling with the spirit. Women swooning and passing out when they see an Elvis Presley or a Beatles and they're hearing this music relates much more closely to what you would see at a Pentecostal service than what you would see at, say, a blues club. So at a certain point, Rosetta Tharp decided to go to New York and will actually start performing at the Cotton Club. And she was still performing a lot of her gospel material, but she was also starting to experiment with integrating uh, secular music. And so this is a wonderful song by Thomas Dorsey about being sheltered and protected by the Lord in your times of trouble. Now, Sister Rosetta would take this, and the way, the inflection that she put on the term rock me and the way she rolled the R's was quite shocking at the time and suggested something much more worldly than this sort of protective spirit. You hide me Hold me in the hollow of the 
<laughs> right, and you know, here she is. She's doing the sacred material, but there's something else going on here. And on top of that, she was recording purely secular songs, uh, songs she recorded with the Lucky Millinder Orchestra, Tall Skinny Papa. Uh, there's no double interpretation of this that has anything to do with sacred and secular. Her popularity did soar during this period, though. It did. This was the period where she would uh, have a publishing contract with Irving Mills. This is when she would start recording for Decca Records, which was unheard of to have anyone singing anything like gospel on Decca. They had experimented briefly with Mahalia Jackson, but had no success. So she was at the height of her popularity during this period. In 1944, she would record what would be her most lasting sort of masterpiece. And this is Strange Things Are Happening Every Day. This was with the Sam Price trio. And one of the interesting things about this recording is Sam Price is playing boogie-woogie piano on this. Price himself was a little bit hesitant to do this on a spiritual record. But again, Sister Tharp said, hey, if, if it's in praise, it's all good. People say they are in this holy way. There are strange things happening every day. On that last great judgment day, when they drive them all away, there are strange things happening every day. Every day. Every day. Every day. And this record in particular would really predict a lot of the things that became the rock and roll revolution in the 1950s. How so? Well, I think rhythmically you hear it. It, it has a different feel than the swing that we heard of Rock Me. It has something that's, that's more visceral and more pushing forward, a lot of that coming out of the piano. This record in particular became extremely popular in Memphis in the 50s, thanks to Dewey Phillips, who was a white DJ, who is sort of credited as the person who broke Elvis regionally. Johnny Cash, in his Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction speech, said that that was his favorite singer as a child, was Rosetta Tharp. Really? Yeah. Some of her best material came in 1946, when she started recording with uh, the singer Marie Knight. Their music is so dynamic and playful and exciting and is, is probably, by my estimation, some of the greatest music recorded during this period of time. This particular song, Up Above My Head, really illustrates the way they're able to feed each off of each other and create something extremely powerful. Where does she really belong in the history of rock and roll? 
Well, that's an interesting question. And there were people that were hearing this music and being inspired by it and bringing it into what they were doing. One of the things that's thought of as being very important about rock and roll is that it was biracial music and it was music that challenged the racial status quo of the time. As we look at this more and more, it's time to reevaluate where we put her in this sort of history of rock and roll. The Million Dollar Quartet, the very famous photo taken in Sun Studios with Jerry Lee Lewis and Elvis Presley and Carl Perkins and Johnny Cash, all of them were influenced by Sister Rosetta Tharp. People fighting one another, I think they're doing swell, and all they want is your money, and you can go Hold and that's all. That's all. Chris Kajornis is a professor of music at Longwood University. There's the kind of preacher, he's high speech. He has to go to college just to learn how to preach in a song. From Showboat and Porgy and Bess in the first half of the 20th century to more recent shows like Caroline or Change in Memphis, the Broadway musical has often taken up Southern themes. But our next guest says they tend to have a negative view of the South and don't reflect its racial diversity today. Gary Richards is a professor of English at the University of Mary Washington and a devotee of Broadway musicals. Um, The vast majority, even in the 21st century, of musicals set in the South tend to freeze it. So it's always the past that is racially fraught. It is the 1960s or the 1920s or even going back into the 19th century. What's missing is the 21st century South. That region still has racial tension, but it's different racial tensions. And that's just not being explored, I find. When the musicals first came out, though, they were representing the fraught racial circumstances in the South. Yes and no. On the one hand, they're identifying the South as a site of racial tension. And I don't want to minimize that. But remember, we're talking about Broadway musicals. This is not the realm of reality. So even when you have in the 1920s, showboat looking back to the 18th 1970s and 1880s, it still is kind of an imagined racial tension. It is one of the earliest lasting musical representations of the South. It was turned into film after film, and it's had famous people embodying these characters. Paul Robeson, for instance, um, beginning the opening number of Old Man River. So let's listen to a little bit, and I, I think you'll see just how moving kind of black toil is made um, by having Robeson sing. You and me, we sweat and strain, body all aching and wrecked with pain, tote at barge, lift at bail, get a little drunk and you land in jail. sick of trying I'm tired of living and scared of dying but old man river he just keeps rolling along That is one of my favorite songs of all time sung by one of the most wonderful voices of all time. I think it's just amazing. And what it does is establish the importance of race at the very beginning. 
And so the musical is going to go on to take up other issues of race. There's um, famously um, an instance of miscegenation in the musical. So in the 1920s, this was groundbreaking. Keep in mind what the typical Broadway, quote unquote, musical was at the time. It was a review. It was lots of showgirls with legs. Suddenly you had Hammerstein taking the novel and adapting it into something that had movement and seriousness. And so what was wrong with that? Why does this pigeonhole the South if it was helping crack open the nut of racial tension? I think that it was not at all problematic at the time. What becomes problematic is the way it gets revived. It has become um, a war horse. So your complaint is not just that these are tired and worn out, that they're perpetuating racial stereotypes of the South. There's a little bit of that. There's also a financial element here. Producer deciding, I'm going to put X million of dollars in Showboat. That's not going towards a musical dealing with the contemporary South. What happens if we're dealing with um, Latino presences in the South now? That may be a more pressing racial issue than something that happened in 1880. Showboat was groundbreaking. And if we go just one decade further, we've got Porgy and Bess. It shifts the focus away from white characters dealing with racism to black characters dealing with racism. We have this being set you know, in the 19-teens, 1920s. What I see going on more recently is a whole spate in which the South is depicted again and again and again, always in the past. It quarantines racial problems to some other region. The thing is, even if we don't quarantine race problems to the South. By setting in the past, we can pat ourselves on the back and say, oh, that was in the bad old days. Are there some musicals that are particularly egregious? The musical Memphis, for instance, it ran for about three years on Broadway. It is about a white DJ who is infatuated with first African-American music and then a young African-American female singer, and they form an interracial liaison. There's a character who has been traumatized by having seen racial violence when he was a child, and so he has become mute. However, when, when he sees this problematized love affair between a black woman and a white man, and it looks like it's not going to work out, he suddenly bursts into song defending interracial love. Say a prayer that change is coming. Say a prayer that hope is around the bend. And if you that change is coming, oh Jesus, then may what you pray come true, amen. In contrast, in 2004, Tony Kushner, working with Janine Tesori, did the musical Caroline or Change. And it is about an African-American maid employed by a Jewish family and about the tensions that emerge between her, her children, and this Jewish family. 
It's set at the time of the Kennedy assassination. So, of course, civil rights is hovering you know, um, in the background. It is also about the change within Caroline. She's very traditional. It is her daughter who is an advocate of civil rights, who demands to be able to engage in protest against racism and things like that. Are there any more recent musicals that offer a more nuanced view of the South? Um, The one that I think is perhaps most significant is um, The Light in the Piazza. It's about two women, two Southern women, a mother and a daughter, who immediately after World War II are traveling abroad, and they're in Italy. It is about them struggling with their Southern culture and how it relates to international culture and European culture. So I think what's important is these are not the buffoonish, white, racist characters um, that we've seen in musical after musical. The daughter is very perplexed by all the naked statues. She's seen a lot of naked boys. And she says, in contrast, back in Winston-Salem, um, it's the land of corduroys, that, that things are covered, things are. And I think you have a very traditional Southern Protestant background. Is there a king? Is there a queen? There were princes, painters, noble men of logic and art. Firenze, Leonardo, Leonardo, Michelangelo, the start. It's a completely naked statue. Twas a dawning day of burning. What it does is shift, I think, to an interrogation of whiteness because we now have this mother and daughter thinking about how their whiteness is different from the whiteness that they're encountering in Italy, what cultural differences they are. So I think that it still is dealing with race, but it is asking us to think about race not strictly in a black-white dichotomy. The first time I went into a classroom when I was teaching in a state institution in New Orleans, and a third of my students were Vietnamese. That's what's not being represented in the South. When I see um, areas where the billboards are all in Spanish, you know, that's not being represented. I think there perhaps needs to be greater diversity in the depictions of race. Well, Gary Richards, thank you for talking to me today on With Good Reason. Thank you for having me here. It's been fun. Gary Richards is a professor of English at the University of Mary Washington. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System using advanced cardiac imaging to better diagnose conditions before they become serious health issues. UVAHealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerzik, Kelly Libby, Cass Adair, and Allison Byrne. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. Special thanks this week to WHRV in Norfolk. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell, wishing all our listeners the best for the holiday season. Oh.